Well, good morning and welcome to Battleground Community Church. If you got your Bibles, I would invite you to open them up to Revelation 3. We're going to be looking at verse 14 to 22 this morning as we finish up our study of the seven churches of Asia Minor. And probably this church is probably the most famous and, and not for good reason. It's almost similar to when we think of uh, the church in Corinth, when we think of Laodicea. It's usually not positive. Uh, but as we read the text together, uh, try to pay attention to Jesus' tone, almost whether you're a parent or a teacher or, or engaged with anyone. You know there's certain times we take certain tones depending on certain situations, and Jesus definitely not only has a tone here in his passage, but it changes throughout the passage too. So try to pick up on that. Is he, is he angry? Is he sad? Is he concerned? Is he hopeful? Uh, let's see as we read the text together. So Revelation 3, beginning at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. So that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I have also sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Lord, as we, as we come here and, and open up this, this last letter that you have written to the churches, Lord, we want to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, we all have seasons of, of dryness and, and times that we don't love you as we ought. We don't hear you as we ought. We don't seek you as we ought. And so, Lord, um, let us hear from you today. Your people called by your name. And Lord, your church is listening. Uh, we have our ears uh, to your word. Lord, teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the question that I ask myself. Why does Jesus care so much about this one church or even seven churches. I don't know where you live, but if, if you drive around, how many church buildings do you see in your neighborhood? Um, so why does he care about an individual church? I mean, what's the big deal? No church is perfect. No people are perfect. And so why does he care so much? Uh, because it is apparent by this text he does. Um, well, I think verse 14 uh, gives us sort of the key to it let's let's look at that verse 14 says and to the angel of a church in laodicea write the words of the amen the faithful and true witness the beginning of god's creation now there is a whole sermon simply in that that one verse but 
what I want you to see is the issue was God's glory in their witness. Uh, look at that Colossians 1, 15 to 18 with me. Uh, you know this passage, I'm sure. Uh, let me read verses 15 to 17 to start with. It says this, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so here we see this Jesus, this is what verse 14 is telling us, is the one who created everything. He is the eternal God, and and he not only created it, he holds it all together, and everything that is created exists for him. But he's not done. Look at verse 18. It said, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. So here's what he's saying. Jesus is the Lord of the first creation, and he is the Lord of the new creation, and we are the first fruits of the new creation. In other words, that's the big deal. That's why he cares about individual churches because these, these churches are the first and best of a harvest that has not fully come, that will fully come when the new heavens and the new earth come. Uh, the Lord deserves our first and our best. He not only deserves it, he demands it. And, and Jesus so is concerned about this one church you see, it's dangerous to have plenty. It's dangerous to be comfortable. It's dangerous to have all of your needs met. There is a subtle deception in our day, and as there always has been, you can even see in Laodicea, of what many of us call the self-made man or the self-made woman. It is your typical American story, the ones that they make commercials about and that the speakers speak on graduation day about. This person who started with nothing, worked hard, and made it. And you can too. Uh, there's truth to it, but oh, there is a subtle deception of this. I'm not picking on anybody in particular. These are just people that we know of. Um, can I ask you a question? Uh, do people like Donald Trump because he is the type of man you would want your daughter dating? Or do people like Donald Trump because he made it and we want to make it too? In 2020, the then New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said about COVID, got, quote, God did not stop the spread of the virus. And what we do and how we act will dictate how the virus spreads. We change the trajectory of the virus by our actions, end of quote. So you can see that is, brothers and sisters, the mindset of the church in Laodicea. This is why Jesus has no commendation, nothing good to say about them nor the church in Sardis. Uh, have you ever thought you were doing good at something when you actually weren't? <laughs> uh, this is embarrassing to say, but it's true. Uh, one of my very first sermons that I preached, I thought I'd, I nailed it. I thought I did very well, and, and only to go back to my mentor the next week, and he said, man, that was bad. <laughs> I, you were all over the place. I didn't know where you were going. Uh, I can't even tell from your notes, you know, and I was like, oh, my goodness. You know, I was astonished, and, and the church here is astonished as well because they thought they were doing well, and they didn't even realize the desperate condition they were in. 
Um, but the Laodicean story is not an uncommon story. You see, when things are going well, people don't act like they need God. They feel really feel like they can handle it on their own. But when war or death or cancer or tragedy strikes, then sometimes even the whole nation falls on their knees, even for a short period of time. Uh, brothers and sisters, what scares me about this recent pandemic is that this is one of the first times that when tragedy strikes, people have pulled away from God close their church doors, and act even in the midst of tragedy as if they don't need God. It concerns me that maybe we are further down the road than even Laodicea. But the point here is clear. Christ as supreme creator and ruler of the universe has every right to critique his wayward church. The question in verse 22 is, will they listen? You could even say it this way. Can they listen? So the main idea, the Lord attends the church in Laodicea and rebukes them for their spiritual complacency, reminds them of its cost, and offers them the gift of repentance in his abiding fellowship. I want us to see three things today, the fierce charge, the tender appeal, and the amazing offer. First, the fierce charge. I want you to feel the tone, but I also want you to see that Jesus is the master teacher. He is teaching and and what I want us to understand is the context in this passage is critical. This text has a couple of mistaught verses in it that we hope to correct. The first context piece that's critical is to understand in Laodicea their water supply. Um, let's read the verse in 15 and 16. Jesus said, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and either cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. You see, the people in Laodicea didn't have a natural source of clean drinking water. Uh, the Lycus River that was close to them was dirty and was unfit, so they had to create aqueducts. And what they did is they brought the hot springs in from one direction and the fresh water in from the other. And so the hot springs had to travel five miles to get there. And guess what happened to the hot spring water by the time it arrived? It was lukewarm. Uh, likewise, they, they got their cold fresh water from Colossae, and by the time it got there, it wasn't cold. And so their, their hot water wasn't hot, and their cold water wasn't cold. And, and see, hot water in that day, they didn't have hot water heaters. They had hot springs, and it was a healing tonic. It was like us who have um, joint problems or aches and pains, and we take a hot shower. Uh, it just feels good. It's, it's healing to us. Not only that, the cold water is refreshing. In other words, the point is it represents what both the hot and the cold, what is good and pleasant. Lukewarm, lukewarm water is repulsive. You don't desire to bathe in it nor to drink it. And so spiritually, let's connect this context then. The, the hot springs wasn't hot nor healing. This means that their spiritual temperature was lukewarm. It was not a flame. They were not passionate. Their Christianity wasn't appealing. It was nauseating. And in the same way, the cold weather, the, the cold water was neither cold nor refreshing. That meant that their spiritual life was bringing no comfort to other people. There was no hospitality in their life. We could even say it this way. There was missing in their life a passionate gospel proclamation 
and a loving gospel demonstration. If it was there, it was this nauseating, unattractive lukewarmness. And so listen, this is important. In this section, Jesus is not teaching that he'd rather you be a hell-bound rebel than a lukewarm believer. He's not teaching that at all. He's not teaching that. He is teaching that true believers are not lukewarm. All Christians should be characterized by a life that is both zealous and comforting, passionate and merciful, faithful and kind. But you see, Laodicea was so wealthy, they didn't need anybody. They didn't need God. They didn't even need the government. In, in A.D. 60, there was an earthquake in Laodicea, and the town was devastating. But they were so wealthy and so self-sufficient that they refused government aid, and they built their city back on their own. They were successful, middle, upper middle class, even wealthy people who could do it themselves. Thank you very much. Matter of fact, they were famous. I know some of us have, because we've been taught this about Laodicea, we didn't understand them that day. They were famous. People came from all around to Laodicea for three reasons. One was their wealth. They were, we could call them, the Swiss bankers of antiquity. They if you had a big project that you needed to be funded, you would come to Laodicea. They were wealthy. And not only that, they had this expensive wool. It, they had these famous breed of sheep that made this fine black wool, and it was expensive, and it, it, people came from all around to get it. Um, and not only that, they, they were known for their health. Uh, we've talked about this before. If you look at the backside of ambulances when they're going down the road, you'll see a snake as one of their symbols. Um, that was a god that was later called Asclepius. And from this worship of this deity that was, that, that was represented by, by a serpent, they produced this medical salve that people would come from all around to get on their eyes. This is critical to understand this passage that they were wealthy, and they, and they had this wool, and they had their health. They felt like under control, man. They, they had it going on, and you see, to be that self-sufficient in that culture, it is almost impossible for it not to eventually creep into the church, and that did. And so the Lord speaks to his church, and he presents a charge. So look at the master teacher's charge in verse 17. He says, you say, so now he's going to reveal their self-deception. He said, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I don't need anything. Um, their major mistake is that they have equated economic prosperity to spiritual prosperity, to spiritual blessings. They thought because they were economically prosperous that God had put his stamp of approval on their life. They would be wearing their God bless Laodicea shirts. But in fact, it was just the opposite. This was shocking to them for Jesus to say this to them. They did not see it. You know, we all say this. You see somebody, you say, how you doing? They say, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's, it's almost like a, a generic greeting. Uh, and that's not good because a lot of times we're not doing good. We don't think anybody really cares. Um, this is worse than that. Um, they're thinking they're good when they're really not good. And so they're self-deceived. This was the illustration that come to mind. Uh, imagine that, that you or me began to have this sore place on our head. No other symptoms, just, just this knot on our head that was sore. 
And, and maybe, you know, if you'd like me, I wouldn't probably go to the doctor. My wife would have to force me to go to the doctor. And, but she notices it. She says, something's not right. You're going to go to the doctor. And so you go to the doctor. He tells you, he tells me or you that we have brain cancer and it's fast growing. But if we act quick, we can be removed and everything would be fine. But imagine I leave from there and just say, I, I don't believe it. I, guys, just after my money, um, I can't get away from this place on my head that's bothering me. So I just go out and buy some different colored hats. And matter of fact, I surround myself with people who believe that, that that's not true either. And they buy me different color hats and we just go on about life. What's the problem there? The truth is I really do have a problem. And if I don't do something, it's going, I am going to perish. This is what's going on. They're not okay, and they don't even know it themselves. Uh, Paul felt the same way about the church in Corinth. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of parallels there in Corinth and Laodicea. Just listen to Paul's sarcasm, 1 Corinthians 4.8. He says, all, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. <laughs> Paul's saying the same thing that Jesus is saying. They are self-deceived. Though they thought they were okay, they were not okay. It reminded me of Jonathan Edwards' message to church-going people when he told them that they were hanging over the pit of hell by sovereign grace and that at any moment Jesus could cut the thread and drop them into the pit and they don't even know it. He said, you say that this is who you are, but this is who you really are. Verse, end of verse 17. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He piles up the words there intentionally so. And so think of the context. He's saying to these Swiss bankers of their day, you are poor and pathetic. That's what wretched means. It means they're pathetic. To those who made the finest black wool and that people would come from all around to buy from them, he said, you yourself are naked. To those who gave salve in people's eyes, he said, you yourself are blind. In other words, the church in Laodicea was like the emperor who wore no clothes. He was naked and didn't even know it. Revelation 16, 15 warns us, it says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. To this, the master teacher not only issues a charge, but he gives them a very sobering warning. He said, this is the consequence of the pathway that you're walking. He says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Everybody's ever eaten any fish. Maybe you're eating a plate of fish and you, you get a bone in your mouth and you try to be as just as polite and discreet as possible and and reach in there and pull that bone out, maybe put it in a napkin. This is not what he's saying. He's not saying I'm just going to try to remove that which I find unattractive. This word you could even say means to vomit. He said he's going to vomit them out of his mouth. It is the same sense in Leviticus 18 where God said he was going to vomit the Canaanites out of the land because of their evilness. And um, the picture here of being spit out of the mouth of God is sobering and it is meant to be sobering he is saying that they have no basis for assurance of salvation if they continue on the path that they're walking a life that is characterized by blindness to the truth of scripture a life that is characterized by an unrighteous life 
and a life that is characterized by treasuring the very same things the world treasures is not a believer individually, nor is it a church of Jesus Christ corporately. So do you grab that tough tone? Uh, good parents do have tones, and they take different tones depending on the situation because sometimes things are serious. The charge is sobering, but the Lord's appeal is tender. And what he desires for his church is wholehearted dependence. Um, look at verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So that you see the Lord's tender appeal. He says, I counsel you. And then you see the point. The goal of Christ is so that they may See, so that they may clothe and so they might be wealthy. Uh, so let's look at these things. This word I counsel you is, is a present active in the way he says it. It means I counsel you and I keep on counseling you to buy from me. And his goal is that their spiritual poverty be turned to spiritual wealth. R remember, these are businessmen. They're merchants. Um, he's using language that they understand. He's not saying that you have to buy salvation. He's contrasting the life that they are living with the authentic Christian life. He's teaching them that spiritual poverty needs spiritual currency and that the only currency God takes is the currency of faith. It, it would be like you traveling to another country and getting some of their currency that you used over there and then come back home with it and try to go to the grocery store. It, it's not going to work. They're not going to take it. And neither will all of their wealth and all of their fame get them anywhere with God. They're spiritually poor, and faith is the only currency that the Lord will take. Listen to Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich fruit. He wants them to buy from them so that they could be spiritually wealthy and so that they may be spiritually clothed. They are spiritually naked now, and they don't even realize it. Nakedness in the Bible means shame. It is that sin always brings shame and guilt. And only Christ and his forgiveness and his righteousness can cover us. And so he contrasts these black garments that they were selling and told them what they needed to do is to buy white garments. That means holiness. That means the righteousness of Christ. Listen to Paul in Philippians 3, verse 6. Listen to what a spiritually wealthy and a spiritually clothed person sounds like when they speak. Now remember, Paul's in prison here. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ." The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So brothers and sisters, do you see Paul's passion? Can you feel his gratefulness? His, he has a zealous, dangerous faith that only grows in times of crisis and tragedy. I ask myself sometimes when I read Philippians, why is Paul more joyful in prison than most of us are in our nice warm homes? We need to deal with that, brothers and sisters. We need to ask the question, why? Because only Christ can cover their nakedness. Only Christ can cover that which has happened in the past or that which you're afraid of in the future. Do you remember the prodigal son? When he repented and came to his father, his father took his own robe, a robe that belonged to the father, and covered him with it. He said, buy from me so that you might, that are spiritually blind, may be healed. There is a spiritual salve, so to speak, that the Lord has to put on our eyes so that we can see. Listen to Jesus. Matthew 13, verse 15 says this, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart. In turn, and I would heal them. Verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Listen to verse 17. It's got all over me this week. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In other words, we have in our hands with Scripture that which the prophets who gave their very lives for delivering a message of God long to see. We have the whole counsel of Scripture. The question is, are we looking into it? Are we coming to it to be healed, to see, to be restored for our wealth? The point of all three of these illustrations in the life of the church of Laodicea was that they must depend on Jesus for everything. They must humbly realize that everything that they have and everything that they have ever accomplished, they did never accomplish anything on their own. What did they have that they did not receive? You know, as you study this, you're bound to ask this question. How do we know? Because all this is happening within the church. And so you're bound to ask the question, how do we know who is genuinely saved? If there are people within the church, and some of them are, are lukewarm, how do we deal with this? How do we put it together? How do we understand it? The truth is, brothers and sisters, that many of us go through seasons of coldness. Uh, we go through times where it seems like God is silent and we are just struggling. Many of us battle depression and fall into bouts of apathy or anxiety. That is all true, brothers and sisters, and that's not the question. The question is a very clear and a very simple one. Can you hear him? Do you love him? Does he pursue you? The question is not whether we have a perfect white-hot faith 24-7, but are we passionate in our repenting? Do we have an ear to hear? You see, those that are redeemed, they are the invisible church made visible, not by their perfection but by their repentance and their dependence on their God. It is 
to these people in verse 19 that the Lord talks to when he says, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. We know this. Scripture is full of this, that the Lord only disciplines us because he loves us, just like a parent who does not discipline his children hates his child. He warns them that something needs to be restored. What needs to be restored? Their fellowship needs to be restored. That's the purpose of verse 20 and 22, is the Lord's amazing offer of abiding fellowship. You see, that's the issue. The Lord and the Laodicean church are not okay because they are not in fellowship. Something has broken the fellowship. This picture is that Jesus is standing at the door of the church and knocking. And I know, brothers and sisters, it's one of these common misused passages of, Behold, I stand at the door of knocking. Evangelists use it to say Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking and you just need to open your heart by praying a prayer or something else. But brothers and sisters, that is not the point of the text. The point of the text is that Jesus is outside of the door of the church and he is knocking. That means that he is outside of their lives. He is outside of their business affairs. He is outside of their hobbies, their plans, their dreams, and most importantly, he is outside of their worship because we know that all of life is worship. This door is a door of fellowship. And the only way this door is to be opened is with repentance. And he says, if you will repent, if you will open the door, I will come in and in to you and sit with you and feast. This is the picture of the banquet coming at the end. Brothers and sisters, Jesus desires to be both worshipped and enjoyed. And here's the truth this morning. You see it in verse 21. Verse 20 and 21 work together. The Lord promises those who fellowship with him now that they will fellowship him with ever. And they and they alone are the ones who will fellowship with him forever. Brothers and sisters, I am amazed that people who live their everyday life as if God does not exist but count on one day to be with Jesus. The only people who will be with Jesus are the ones who are with him now. Verse 21 says, The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. If you connect verse 20 and verse 21, it is the one who come, he, that he comes into their life and abides with them and into the church and abides there. They are the one who conquers, and they are the one who will sit with him on his throne. The reign of Christ is to be shared with all the saints, all those who belong to him. And the way we know who belongs to him is those who are passionate and zealous for him now. And so the most important question this morning is what is our spiritual temperature? Uh, in other words, here's what I'm saying. Has my own self-sufficiency become an idol for me? That I devote my time, my energy, and my effort? In other words, I'm just speaking even just to myself today, but I know there have to be those out there that are like me who oftentimes get too much out of their careers, their titles, their accomplishments, their work. We can even keep people at arm's length so we don't have to share with them our limits and our fears and our struggles. And so I don't have to allow them to help me carry my burdens. We think we need to be these self-made men or women when in reality not only do we need Christ, but we need each other. So how do I know that this is happening in my life? 
Well, how's your prayer life? You see, self-sufficient people are generally prayerless people, at least when things are good. Self-sufficient people are also impatient people. Uh, We are, uh, all of us, and me especially, I I am a get-it-done kind of person. I mean, I order stuff from Amazon. If it don't come in the next day, I'm checking on it because I don't like to wait. But the Lord tells his people to, to wait and to trust in him. The Lord promises that, that he will provide for us through his people. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4, Paul says this, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The irony of self-sufficiency is it leaves you deficient, whereas a God dependence makes you sufficient for that which God tells you and gives you to do. This is so hopeful. I love this quote. David Mathis says this, Christianity is not for the self-sufficient. It is not a religion for the rich and strong. Jesus didn't come to comfort the well-to-do and rally those who have their lives in order. He did not come to gather the good but the bad. Jesus came not to call the righteous but sinners. So what is your spiritual temperature and how is your present fellowship with Christ? It's possible, brothers and sisters, that our relationship with Christ has, has been lukewarmed, watered down to where it's no more than brushing my teeth or checking a box. Uh, Jesus deserves our first and best of everything in life. And so today, let me just challenge you with myself. Give him the start of your day. Give him the first of your finances. Give him the best part of you. Jesus deserves better, brothers and sisters, than to watch a sermon from the couch and get on with your life. Jesus is knocking this morning. He longs and deserves to be enjoyed and treasured by you. The question is, will we repent and return to the God who loves us, the God who provided salvation for us, the God who desires to have a relationship with us, and the God that we desperately need? Let's pray. And so, Lord, we have heard your word as we finish up this study of the seven letters and lord may may you identify the real us and then bring us to who we need to be in you and so lord we give ourselves to you now that we have heard the truth to be transformed and to conform our lives to the image of christ now as we seek to apply god's word in our life holy spirit do your work in your people as you promised you would do in jesus name amen